We are in 2 Peter chapter 2, and at this point, Peter is talking about false prophets, about false teachers. Pastor Nick started us off in this chapter last week telling us that uh, false prophets and false teachers, they have been among us, they will be among us, we need to watch out for them, we need to realize that they're going to be in the midst doing their damage, but to realize also that some of these false teachers, they are they're living a good life right now. You look at some of the multi-million dollar homes that some of these false teachers and health and wealth uh, preachers uh, live in, and it seems like they got a good thing going for them. And that's why we need to remember what it said at the, at the end of the passage from last week. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. Things may seem like it's going well for them at the moment, but this does not mean that God is, is, is sleeping. This does not mean that they are going to be living the easy life forever. There is going to be judgment coming. God is going to make things right. And these false teachers, maybe they even have a message that you know, God doesn't judge, that you do what you want because God is just a God of love and there's not going to be judgment, there's not going to be consequences. And of course, they would love that for themselves too because they don't want what really would be coming to them. But we see in the passage that we look at today that uh, God is a God that will bring justice. He's a God that will bring uh, punishment when it is due, when it is coming. He is not like a judge that shirks his duty and lets things slide. But he's also a God that knows how to rescue. And we'd be very thankful for that. So let's read, let's start with the passages from last week so that we're reading this in context. So starting with Second uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 1, But false prophets also rose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth, truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Now, this next section that we're going to be looking at, 4 through 10, is really uh, giving evidence for the truth of that last statement, that there's destruction coming for them. It is not asleep. It might look like it at the moment, but don't worry, God knows how to, how to deal with evil, to deal with those that are, that are harming other people. And that's what these false teachers are doing. It's not this private thing, just their problem. It is spreading, it is hurting, it is, it is damaging the, the souls and the lives of other people as they, as they spread their, 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 their evil and their infection. Verse 4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ash, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed, by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he heard and saw. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So we're going to be looking at this passage. We're going to walk through it maybe in a slightly kind of different way than we normally do. But there's really, I think, two aspects to this. And we really hit the purpose of why he, he's giving all these examples um, from, from the book of Genesis uh, with punishing angels and Sodom and Gomorrah and the flood. Uh, and we need to look at these. But the reason he gives those examples, uh, the payoff for this comes in verse 9 when it says, you know, if these things happen, if the Lord did this, and we know that he did, then the Lord, two things, he knows how to rescue the godly from trials, and the other thing, he knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. 
So it's proving the fact that their condemnation is not asleep. God will deal with these evildoers and bring destruction upon them. Yes, God is a God of love. He's a God of very, very deep love, and we'll see. But he's also a God that when we uh, rebel against him, we resist him, if we don't you know, come under uh, to him as, as Lord and Savior, turning our hearts to him, then we remain his enemy. And you do not want to remain the enemy of the Lord. So we'll split this into two parts. And the first that we'll look at and see that false teachers will not escape God's judgment. This is talking about how it says that God knows how to keep the, uh, the ungodly under, under judgment, under, under punishment. So he does this and he gives three examples that we'll look at. And depending on your background, uh, these might be uh, um, more familiar, they might be unfamiliar. They're interesting things to look at. We need to explore what these are and whether it's new or maybe it's been a while. The first one, he talks about angels. So rebellious angels will be judged. This one is really interesting. Like, what is going on here? It says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and we see the word there for hell is Tartarus. I'll come back to that in a moment. And committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So a reminder what angels are. Uh, when you die, you do not become an angel. Okay, when your loved one dies, heaven does not gain another angel. Angels are not departed, the souls of departed people. Angels, according to scripture, are an entirely different race than humanity, uh, probably created before humanity, and uh, they're spirit beings, and they were created good by the Lord. And even the, the highest of the original angels, uh, Lucifer, was created good, but he rebelled. He turned against the Lord and took with him uh, maybe a third of the angels, and they rebelled, and they became the demons. And so this is what it's talking about, uh, the, the demons here. However, I think this probably is not a reference in this passage to the, the original fall of Satan and the demons. I think that's something that... Um, we can infer from Scripture, but we look at this when it talks about being kept under chains of gloomy darkness until the judgment. I think there's something else that is going on here, and it's actually really interesting. The word hell here, you know, our word hell is kind of a catch-all term, but it can be translated in a lot of different ways. And sometimes uh, we have to realize that Scripture talks about uh, Hades. It uses different terms, some of them taken from, you know, the Greeks, but uh, used to describe uh, actual realities. Uh, there's, you know, the abyss. Sometimes Jesus sends demons into the abyss. Uh, there's the lake of fire that is the actual end place for Satan and for the demons and for anyone that follows him, that dies without Christ. And this uses the word Tartarus, which was also used by the Greeks as uh, for a place in the underworld that was even lower than, than Hades. It was reserved for the most wicked of beings, the most wicked, they thought of, of men, of supernatural beings, of whatever it was. And so Peter here is, is using a term that um, they would have, uh, not to say he's tapping into Greek mythology, but he's using this a term for, I think, an actual biblical place here. It's used only here, but it seems to be somewhere different than either like the lake of fire or the abyss. In Revelation 20, verse 10, I'll read it to you. This is at the end of all things, and it says, The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and there they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And in Matthew 25, 41, it, Jesus says, uh, Then he will say to those on the left, Depart from you, cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and for his angels. So that, the lake of fire there, that's the final hell that uh, the devil and demons and those that follow him, those that die without Christ, end up in the lake of fire. Uh, so some might refer to, okay, that's the, the final hell, but that seems to be somewhere slightly different than what it's referring to here. This is a place where people, or where these, um, these angels are, uh, it says, kept until the judgment. It's somewhere prior to that. It also seems to be a little bit different than the abyss. If you read the Gospels, Jesus, uh, sometimes when he casts out demons, he sends them into the abyss or into the pit. And the part of the difference seemed to be the, the abyss seems to be a place of confinement 
uh, for demons, but it seems to be a place more of temporary confinement because you see other times where uh, demons are released from it. So they can be in there for a while, but then they could be released. In Revelation 9-11, it talks about uh, demons coming out of the abyss, out of the pit. And so it seems to be a, a different uh, place than this. That on one hand, if you thought of the abyss as like demon jail, then Tartarus, maybe this is something different. This seems to be like demon maximum security prison. Okay, that's not a temporary place, that they are there until the final judgment. Because it talks about these being, uh, you know, chained there. And it, it, in the book of Jude, it refers to it as eternal chains until the, uh, the judgment in the great day. So you think about this. Why are there some demons that are there and maybe not others? And another thing we have to consider is that Satan... I mean, he's the, he's the leader of all of them. He's the, he's the worst of them. In, according to Scripture, he is not currently in Tartarus. Uh, where is he according to Scripture? He is, he is loose on the earth. He is present. He is doing his, his best to uh, destroy and to kill and to lead people astray. And looking at the world around us, he's really good at it. He's doing a really good job and working through a lot of people and a lot of businesses and governments and corporations, churches, to do his work. But we know that he is, isn't in Tartarus. He's on earth. Back in Job, in the Old Testament, Job 1, 7, the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And say, well, that was the Old Testament, maybe after the time of Christ, maybe now Satan is imprisoned. But it, we look um, back in 1 Peter, in 1 Peter 5, 8, uh, this is after the time of the cross and the resurrection. Peter told us, be sober-minded and be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, that makes us realize, okay, if, if Satan isn't in Tartarus, and it's a special place that's confined for uh, certain of these, these demons, why isn't he there? And it seems to be that there's maybe some sort of special sin or some reason why some of these demons got put into, into Tartarus, into this place where the Lord said, yep, you are done here, and uh, you are done until the day of judgment. We are locking you up here. There's some special sin and it seems to be, given the context of all of this that we're seeing in um, both Second uh, Peter 2 and also Jude when it talks about this, that likelihood it has something to do with something with uh, sensuality or sexuality as well, too. Just kind of a hint at this. And as we said, Tartarus seems to be a place of permanent confinement um, for demons who committed some special sin. I think... And it's one thing we can't be absolutely sure on, and people have different views on this, but it seems like the sin of the sons of God in Genesis, chapter 6, 1 through 4, is likely the best um, candidate for this is like the special sin that was committed why some of these demons got put into Tartarus, into this place with uh, gloomy chains until the day of judgment. Now, let me read that to you. This is Genesis chapter 6. Verses kind of one through four. And this is right before the flood, right before Noah's flood. It says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, and we'll come back and say, What were these sons of God? saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So kind of this nebulous, mysterious passage. And we say, what's going on here? Now some interpret uh, the sons of God here to refer to the, the godly line of Seth intermarrying with uh, the godly or the, the godly line of Seth intermarrying with the ungodly line of Cain. 
So godly people intermarrying with, uh, with ungodly people. However, the, the most common Jewish interpretation in the first century, and Peter writing to other uh, people and what they would have understood this at, uh, is the most common Jewish interpretation in the first century is that the sons of God here is a reference to uh, Genesis 6 and to uh, these, these fallen angels. Um, this is a view um, also, a book that's not scripture, the book of Enoch, but is familiar to many people is from the time in between the Old and the New Testament. Uh, but this is the, the view that probably people would have, would have understood. And I think Peter, he's not going from uh, just kind of legends, but he's looking, I think, probably back to Genesis 6. And so if this was the case, it could be that what was going on here is you had some of these demons uh, that, uh, is, it says in Jude and other places, they were not keeping to their proper abode, um, but they were somehow uh, having relationships, and we don't know exactly how this would work, with, uh, with human females. And when it talks about the Nephilim, these kind of mighty men, these seem to be these like, gigantic, like titan-like figures, that this seems to be some kind of offspring of this, this unnatural union. And I don't know how this would work, because, I mean, angels are pure spirit. They don't have a biological, you know, capability. I wonder if it might be more they were, you know, possessing uh, human men and doing it that way, but we, we don't know for sure. But I think that is a, probably, I think, the most likely thing that Peter here is referring to when he talks about the angels, when they send, being cast into Tartarus. They're being condemned there. Now, some would also say, well, Maybe Peter is just referring to this as Jewish tradition, but he doesn't really think it happened. You know, sometimes we refer to, you know, different legends, or if I, you know, a preacher uses a, um, you know, an illustration from Lord of the Rings or something, that doesn't mean we actually think it happened. Um, but a few things to consider. The other examples that he's going to give in a moment, are the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, these things actually happened. And also, too, Peter is trying to convince us that of the reality that God will bring his judgment upon these false teachers. And also, Peter had just stressed in, in chapter 1, verse 16, that he is not peddling myths. He's not peddling cleverly designed things. So uh, if this is the correct interpretation, that these are these uh, fallen angels that sinned in this way, and then God shut that down and said, not enough, and you guys are going into uh, angel maximum security prison here until the day of judgment, and then you get dumped into the lake of fire forever. Uh, that that's what's going on here. So that's the first example. So God did not spare these angels. He didn't just say, well, you know, we'll just let you be and do what you want. No, he gave consequences to these angels. The next example that he gives here is with uh, the ancient world before the flood. And so the ancient world before the flood was judged Second uh, Peter 2, verse 5, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if, we, if you happen to still be in, uh, in Genesis, looking at that, we just read the first two verses. But then after that, we see um, kind of the statement that happens right before God sends his flood that he uh, gives, where he preserves Noah, it says, And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. God saw all that people are doing, they're just they're thinking about evil all the time. I mean, it's just their, their total depravity was just, was just uh, shining through constantly, um, unrestrained. And it says, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart, seeing all this sin for a holy God. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animal, creeping thing, and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made him. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord said, You know, you guys, humanity, you should just be done. And we're going to have a redo here. And... I want to show you what the consequences of sin should be. It should mean that you are, you're all wiped out. And you know what? We're still sinners too. And I think if it weren't for the fact that God had promised not to do this again, and the rainbow is given as a pledge that he's not going to destroy the world by, by flood again, besides that, what, 
reason do we have that it's not happening to us now? I mean, really. So you can read through Genesis uh, 6 through 9, the account of Noah, and uh, Noah found favor. So it was one that, that God looked upon with, uh, with grace and found favor in the Lord's eyes, and he spared him and his wife and his three children and his three sons and, and their wives. So again, if you think, well, God never judges. Well, okay, if, if, if you've read the Old Testament, even the book of, book of Genesis, you realize God is a God that, that does judge. He is a God that uh, he judged the whole earth here. And it's not like we're that much better. Next example that is given is Sodom and Gomorrah. It talks about Sodom and Gomorrah are judged. Of course, this leads to the question that many of you are asking a few questions. So talking about Gomorrah. Questions, where is Gomorrah? Who is Gomorrah? Why is Gomorrah? So... Uh, Okay, for those of you that got that joke. Okay, Gamora here is, is not the uh, member of the Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, we're talking here about the ancient city of Gomorrah, Sodom and Gomorrah, these two wicked cities uh, that are talked about in Genesis 13. So Abraham and Lot, his nephew, they have their herds. You know, they're very wealthy. They have all these herds, and there's not enough land for both of them. They need to split up. And Abraham says to Lot, hey, you choose which way you want to go, and I'll go the other way. I'll let you pick. And he looks down to the valley, and he says, hey, it looks good there. It's green. There's water. I'm going to go this way. And he goes, and that's where Sodom and Gomorrah is. He went there because it looked like it was, it was attractive. It looked like it would be a good place to be, to be prosperous. And he ends up living in Sodom uh, among these people. And we see that it was, it was hard living among these people. When the Lord visits Abraham in Genesis 18, and you can read these stories more uh, in, in depth sometimes as you're studying them, but the Lord told Sodom that he was, or the Lord told Abraham he was going to destroy Sodom. He says they're, they're wicked and this needs to be taken care of. And Abraham intercedes. He knows that Lot's there and he says, you know, what if you find 50 righteous people there? Will you spare it? And the Lord says, yes, I will. And then Abraham basically says, well, what if there's just 45? And the Lord says, okay, if I find 45, I'll spare it in this whole city. And eventually, you know, Abraham gets him down to, okay, if you just find 10 people, will you spare it? And the Lord says, okay, if I find 10, that's all that he needed to find to spare the city. It was 10 people that were in a right relationship with God, and he would spare it. But he didn't even find 10 people. And so the Lord goes to destroy Sodom. And you can read the whole story in Genesis 19. Uh, talks about these angels, they come to visit Lot and that he's in Sodom. And Lot, he takes them in. They had said, well, we, we're going to spend the night on the town square. And he says, no, 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 that would be not a good idea because he knows what the people in the city are, are like. And he takes them in and it says here, I'll read it, uh, Genesis 19, verse 4, but before they laid down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, so like all the, all the males, they're all coming out. What's going on here? And they surround the house. So you got this huge mob of all the, all the men, all the males in the city, young and old, and they call, call to Lot, saying, where are the men who you came, that came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Now, it doesn't mean we may know them in the sense of we'd like to get to know them, you know, let's have a little meet and greet. Let's, uh, you know, exchange business cards. That's not what this means. And different translations might be more blunt and say that we may have sex with them. They wanted to have uh, homosexual relations with these men. They saw some new people in town. They were interested, and this is what they wanted to do. And you had the, the mob coming out for this. So it's, it's no in the sense of Adam knew Eve, and she bore a son, that type of thing. And Lot went to them to meet them at the entrance and shut the door after them and says, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. He tries to offer his daughters to them instead. I have two daughters. They're not married yet. They haven't known a man. Would this do? And they're like, no, we don't want that. It's a whole other issue. Like, what? That's pretty messed up too. I know you're trying to show hospitality to your guests, but all right. Um, <clears throat> and they, they wouldn't have this. Um, but they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow, 
came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Like, you're being all judgmental here. You know, don't you realize, you know, we have, the, we have the numbers here. We took a vote on what we think is morally acceptable. It's all of us versus you, and you're going to judge us. You're going to, you know, nobody likes the one that's informing people that what they're doing is wrong. Then we will deal worse with you and them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot, and he drew, and drew near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both great and small, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. So these angels, they end up blinding you know, all these men that are trying to beat down the door. But even in their blindness, even after being judged by this, this is they wore themselves out still trying to find this door and, and beat their way in. I mean, this is how much of this, uh, this sexual desire was in their heart for what they wanted to do here. So you have this issue going on. This, uh, well, the word sodomy comes from Sodom. I mean, that's, uh, that's the reality uh, here. Uh, so Lot and his two wives, they flee to another town, to Zor. It talks about Lot's wife looks back at Sodom as it's destroyed, and she's turned into a pillar of salt, whether that's supernatural or whether she's getting like the, the broomstone and all this and it does it to her. I don't think she just looked back, you know, just a quick glance. I think she like, you know, tarried, she went slow because... God gives him all the time to get all the way to this next town before he does it. But I think she's like, I don't really want to leave. I don't want to leave this behind. I don't want to leave you know, my life with these people and all the, the great things we had going on here. So Peter gives us another example of God's, God's judgment and said that God did this, according to 2 Peter 2.6, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. You know, we can be just thankful for God's grace that he doesn't rain the hail and the brimstone down on every city that deserves it because it would be worse than World War III breaking out here. You think of just the level of rebellion that there is against the Lord. But here God did give this judgment to these two cities as an example to teach us this is what, this is what sin deserves. This is what Sin has coming to it. It's an example that we should look at and, and draw from to heed the warning. And again, Sodom shows that you can't learn right and wrong by taking a vote from your culture. And the culture here would have said, this is fine, this is great. We're, we're all, we all agree this is great. And they went on like everything was fine until judgment finally came. So it gives these examples, but then it, in Peter, he draws a conclusion from this, and this is first from uh, verses 9 and 10. So these are judged, they have been judged, and if this is true, God will judge others in the future. False teachers, I mean, other standard as well, but he's talking about false teachers here. False teachers, I think, especially who promote sexual immorality, you know, lust, and autonomy, which is rebellion, doing your own thing, on my own law, that's what autonomy means, will be judged. It says in verse 9, Then the Lord knows how to rescue godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially, verse 10, those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. And in those examples from Genesis, so many of those, they had this idea of um, of lust, of sexual sin, and they also had the idea of just rebellion, um, autonomy, defying authority, saying, I, I, I do what I want. I am my own law. And you th we think of how much is in the water in our culture today. Man, how much of it is those same things in our society? Right now, so much having to do, especially with sexual immorality, Sexual relations, which are a gift from God, created by God for a man and a woman that are married to each other, designed to be a good thing that binds a, a husband and a wife together in a spiritual intimacy. And people have used it for all kinds of uh, wrong purposes and doing damage to themselves, to their own souls, to other people, those that, whose souls are being ripped apart by promiscuity, by all kinds of things that are not according to God's design and how he intended it. 
and people today that are promoting this and saying, no, this is good, and you should try this, you should do this, and you are the judge, and nobody, don't let a God, don't let some 2,000-year-old book tell you what to do, that you, you decide what you want to do. Believe that God is the designer. He knows how we were created. He knows how we ought to function. And he knows what is right and wrong. And we shouldn't be our own law. That's what autonomy is. Autonomos, self-law. That God is the lawgiver. And what he tells us is right and it is good for us. But these issues of lust and autonomy, wow, these are all over today. There's so many examples I could give. I want to talk about just kind of two examples from our culture and one, this is a video I just, I saw this past week that came out. And this is a um, young man that goes uh, as uh, Reverend uh, Brandon Robertson. So I don't know if he's actually with the church. He goes as a reverend, but he produces uh, you know, videos online influencing all kinds of people. And this is a video, it's about a one minute. I'm going to have you watch this. And here he talks about John 11 with Lazarus, Jesus bringing Lazarus out of the tomb. And he makes a point here that Jesus, actually what he's doing here, maybe you didn't realize this, but he's helping his friend uh, here to, to come out. Did you know that Jesus helped his friend come out? In John chapter 11, verse 43, this is what it says. Jesus called out in a loud voice saying, Lazarus, come out. You see, Lazarus was locked up in a cold, dark tomb, wrapped in burial cloths, left for dead. That's exactly what so many Christians and so many churches do to LGBT people. They wrap us up and bind us up and tell us that we need to keep our identity, our true self locked away. But Jesus, upon seeing Lazarus in this state, he says, Lazarus, come out, step into the light, take off the cloth, be who you are, come alive. I believe that this is what Jesus is speaking to every LGBT person. Come out of the tomb of shame. Take off the chains that have bound you up. Step into the glory of who God made you to be, fearfully and wonderfully made, just as you are. You are beloved of God. Um, and this is the, the theology you're teaching if you're, if you're getting your theology from TikTok. Okay? Or if your kids are getting their theology from, from TikTok or their social media or all over the place. There's, I, this is not an isolated clip. I've never heard anybody else make that claim that that's what Jesus was doing when he talked to Lazarus to come out. Okay, so that's one issue. Just, I mean, that is not what this passage is about. You know, and in 2,000 years, nobody has looked at that and said, oh yeah, it's about telling you know, Lazarus to come out as, as a gay man. Nobody has seen that because that's not there. Lazarus is literally dead, and Jesus is literally raising him to life and telling him to come out of the tomb. That's what's going on. And Jesus, who can give us new life and give us new, new physical life and new spiritual life, this is what he's doing. The only reason that you would think that is if that's what you want to see, and you are cramming that into the passage, and you don't care what the original intent is, you want to make it say what you want it to say. And whether it's that passage or so many others in Scripture, there are social media influencers that kids are watching all the time. Kids at school are just absorbing this stuff. And you think, well, I don't know if I can bring them to Sunday school for 45 minutes. They're, just, they're getting pummeled with these messages. And it's not just this. There are Christian professors writing books justifying uh, this type of thing, saying it's okay, saying we've misunderstood this for 2,000 years, and actually it's fine, actually it, it's good. So it's not just, okay, there's the one level of how you'd have to just mangle Scripture to, to make this fit, but just other the, the issue of leading people astray like this, you know, giving them a, a salve for their sin and saying it, it, it's okay, just carry on with this. It, God, God smiles at this when it's not something that is right. You know, scripture says, uh, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. It's Isaiah 5.20. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. 
And think of the, this type of false teaching, somebody that, that claims to be a Christian or claims to be speaking God's truth here. And how different this would be from a message that would say to someone, okay, if you do struggle with same-sex attraction, if that is something that, that you experience or maybe that you've acted on, to realize that Jesus still loves you. He loves you not because of that, but he loves you in spite of this. And these were sins that, that Jesus Christ died for, to pay for, to, to take away. But out of love, we need to tell you, don't just keep drinking the poison. If it's something, whether it's that type of sin or a heterosexual sin or any type of sin, you don't want to keep drinking the, the poison that is killing you. You want to turn your heart away from that. And to realize that Jesus came and he paid the price for that sin for all of our sins so that we could have forgiveness. And that in a place like 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it, it lists that as a sin, one of the sins, and there's many others, that will keep someone out of the kingdom of God. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, or adulterers, or men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greed, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. There's all kinds of sins, and whether you haven't committed one of those, you probably committed some of those. Because we're all sinners and we all need Jesus, we all need the grace of God. But it also says, and such were some of you. This means when you come to Jesus, the Lord is your Savior and he saves you. He doesn't just leave you as you are. You get a born-again heart. He changes you from the inside out. And yes, there might and there will be some, there are going to be struggles with sin. Maybe with that sin, maybe with other sins that we still have to deal with. But that is no longer your core identity. Your core identity now is that you are in Christ. Your core identity is that you're born again, that you belong to him. These are other things that are temporary that you're dealing with, that you're fighting against, that you're trying to, to mortify. It's not your core identity and it's not your permanent identity. That's the message of love. That's the message of love and truth and freedom for all sinners that we all need to hear. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So there are people doing false teachings regarding to sensual sin, sexual sin and sensuality um, on the internet, at churches. I mean, there are whole churches that are, are very proud to be affirming of things that the Bible says, no, this is wrong. And there are also huge companies that are making it their goal to promote things, and even to young children. If you've been watching the news, you saw that Florida passed what is rightfully called the Parental Rights in Education Bill. Governor Ron DeSantis signed it into the law. Maybe you don't know that's the title because the, the media doesn't ever call it by its actual title. They call it the Don't Say Gay Bill, which is not what it's called, and that's not even the language of this bill. The whole bill here, well, it's actually a law now. I've gone online and read it, and you could find it online and actually read the thing for yourself, too. It, it's, it's a good law. And a lot of it is parental rights saying that educators need to notify parents. They can't keep parents in the dark about certain things. But a part that has really got people's ire here is part... What it actually says is, quote, classroom instruction by school personnel or third parties on sexual orientation or gender identity may not occur in kindergarten through grade three or in a manner that is not age appropriate or developmentally appropriate for students in accordance with state standards. This should be common sense. I think kindergartners to third grade, it's saying don't sexualize young children. Let them be innocent. They don't need to know these type of things from school. And people are upset about this. And some of the progressive teachers that at one hand are saying, oh no, we don't try to indoctrinate young children, now are upset because we can't indoctrinate young children. So which is it? And then you have the whole issue with Disney. And so Disney at first, you know, people were 
the progressives at Disney were outraged that Disney, they felt, had not done enough to fight against this bill and to speak out against it. So, of course, now, you know, Disney is bending over backwards to show just how progressive they are and, and everything. And with this, some things have come out. There have been some corporate videos that have been released by leadership at Disney. You know, this is supposed to be the safe, the, the family channel for our kid with Mickey Mouse and kids programs. And they're trying to convince uh, their progressive members that, no, we're, we're with you and we're, we're actually um, promoting these things. Television education president, Carrie Burke, in some messages openly discussed their agenda. In one video she said, well, she mentioned that she is, she said the mother of, quote, two queer children, one transgender and one pansexual child. And in the video, she said she would like to see at least 50% of Disney characters in the future identify, identify as LGBTQIA or a racial minority. Now, of course, a racial minority, we have no problem with that, but it's this issue of, um, for children, pushing this in. I'm gonna show you one of these videos, you can find them online, where she talks about this. And she used to be um, at one of uh, a Disney-related channel called Freeform, and she's talking about what they would do there to, um, well, I'll let her speak for herself. Company. When, when I was at Freeform, um, it was very much in the brand ethos of Freeform to be the tip of the spear when it comes to inclusion. And, um, and we, like you, Latoya, I mean, we jumped up and down. We celebrated that. Nobody stopped us. And, and it felt great. And, and in part, I, I think nobody stopped us because we were, um, you know, we were targeting Gen Z and, and millennials. We were tar targeting a younger, um, I, I think more open-minded. Um, and, and now we know, you know, as my son texted me this morning, <laughs> you know, Gen Z is 30 to 40% queerer than the other generation's mom. So Disney better get with it. And <laughs> Jesus said in Matthew 18.6, whatever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin is, would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. That's how Jesus feels about those that are leading kids into, into sin. So false teachers need to repent, need to stop, be warned. That's what, one of the takeaways from this. For others, we need to be aware I would say, too, we also need to make sure that we're not being false teachers either in the things that we approve of. The things that we, on social media, we click like to because we want to be supportive of a friend. Things that we repost. And there are false teachers out there with the platform making this, but there are other people and some that claim to be Christians that will post all kinds of things that are antithetical to what God says and are pushing promoting an agenda, leading people into, into sin instead of leading them away from it. I don't want to leave us on this negative note because the other part of this passage is that God also knows how to rescue the godly from trials. God knows how to rescue the godly. And let me say, the godly here, it doesn't mean perfect because none of us are. I think it means those that are in a right relationship with him. Those that well, we'll talk about what this means. It gives examples. It, gives, it talks about Noah. Noah and his family were rescued. He preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And Noah and his family, they were saved from, from the waters of judgment that came upon the earth. You say, was it by building the ark? Well, ultimately it was by entering the ark. Okay, it wasn't just building it. You could build it in there. Hey, there's a nice ark. Um, and it was there, and you know what? I think if uh, there were people that had turned their hearts away from sin and said, you know, hey, we repent, is there room on us? Hey, it's a big ark. But it ended up being Noah and his wife, three sons, and their, and their wives. And that's what was saved, along with the uh, animals, at least two of every kind, to, to repopulate the earth. But they were saved in the ark. You know, in the same way, we had a message in First Peter where we talked about this, our salvation comes from being in Christ, from entering him. And he took the water of judgment when he died on the cross in our place. We talk about Palm Sunday. Why did Jesus enter Jerusalem? Why did he do this? He was going to the cross. He was going to judgment. And when we 
are baptized into him, not the water baptism, but when we are put into Christ at salvation through faith. Okay, so if you believe in Jesus Christ, you are put into Christ like Noah going into the ark and kept safe through judgment. Jesus took the judgment for us. He went into the depths of judgment when he died on the cross and came out again when he was raised again. If you are in Christ, you will be saved the same way that Noah was. And Noah, it says here, he was a herald of righteousness. And the culture didn't appreciate that. They didn't like that. Don't shrink back from proclaiming God's truth to a hostile world. Do it in the right way. Try to be winsome. Do what you can. But don't shrink back from it. The world wants to shut everyone up. We don't want you to be our judges. You be quiet. But in love, we need to find ways to communicate that to people in the right way. So Noah and his family were rescued. Lot was rescued, verses 7 and 8. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul, he was vexed in his soul, over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. So Lot was saved. Um, was it Lot and his family, not all of them. He tried to convince his, the fiancés for his daughters, and they didn't believe him. They wanted nothing to do with it. So in their unbelief, they didn't come out, and they weren't saved. Lot's wife came with them, kind of, but she looked back or went back or whatever it was, and so she ended up being judged too. So in an opinion, it's Lot and his, and his two daughters uh, that ended up getting out of this. From this we can see, it talks about Lot being distressed. You know, don't let your soul grow used to the sin that you see around us. It's, we're around it so much that it can be so easy to become numb to it, to become okay with it, and to not be, be vexed and, um, and disturbed by what we see. I mean, that doesn't mean that we're, we're, we're lashing out, but don't let your heart just be changed by the sin that we live in. And we do live in a sinful world, you know, and until you die or the rapture happens where we're taken out of this, this is where we're going to be to one extent or the other. But we need to, in the world but not of it, not letting the, we need, like a ship in, in the ocean, but trying not to let the ocean get into the ship. And choose wisely the situations you want to put yourself and your family into. I know we're supposed to be salt and life in this salt and light in this world. And there's ways we're supposed to be missionaries. I, I don't think we should completely withdraw from everything. But notice Lot, he made his decision just on what he thought was going to be material prosperous for his family. This looks good. They have good green place. He didn't think about what will this do to my family spiritually. And it ended up wrecking his family. If you read further, even with his daughters, they were not godly princesses, okay? And how many times people will take a job, they will make decisions for their family without calculating into that the spiritual impact that it will have on them and that will have on their family. Got to take these things to account. But finally, these things are true, but this points to a greater reality, that there's, these were rescued, but this also means, according to this passage, that God will also rescue others. And we know that means that God will rescue those who are in Christ. Those who are in Christ will be rescued. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. And it might be that in the trials of this life, he helps us to work our way through them. It might be that when the day of the Lord finally comes, that like Lot, he will remove us from that situation uh, before that judgment strikes the earth. But the ultimate rescue is ultimately salvation in Christ. See, we all deserve to be punished. God is a just judge. He is not a judge that just says, well, you know, because love wins and everything's fine. He is a God that will not let sin go unchecked. Sin has to be punished. And that's why Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He entered Jerusalem because he was not coming in this great victory, actually. It wasn't actually this great triumph right now. He was coming to go to the cross. And as we 
have Easter week here, leading up to Easter, and, and it was Good Friday hits, and we think about Christ on the cross and what he was doing there for us, realize that it's not just these false teachers that, need, that are under punishment. This would be all of us. And as it says in John 3:36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It means at one time we we're all under the wrath of God because we are all sinners. And the way to get out from that is to come under the cross of the one that God poured down his wrath upon his son that willingly took that wrath for us in our place. As Peter said in his first letter, for Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. And that's what Jesus was doing on the cross. False teachers, yes, they are unrighteous. But guess what? You and I, we, without Christ, we are unrighteous as well. Be under the wrath of God. But praise God that he loved us enough that Jesus came, the God-man came, and on the cross took the wrath of God that we deserve. I hope that you are under the cross, saved and loving him for it. Let's pray. God, there are false teachers in this world and so much false teaching wanting us to follow our desires, follow our own thinking and our own rules. And God, we have all gone after them ever since Satan tempted and deceived and uh, led Adam and Eve to do their own thing. We have all followed suit and tried to do our own thing as well. And we are, without Christ, we stand under your condemnation, Lord. But God, we thank you. Thank you that you have shown us the reality that living in sin and living in rebellion leads to nothing but punishment and ruin, eternal condemnation, Lord. And you would have been perfectly just to leave us in that situation for all eternity, like you will do with the angels that sin. But Lord, you have such mercy and compassion. You have grace we did not deserve. We did not deserve for Jesus Christ to come into this world, the one who was innocent, to die on the cross taking the place of sinners like us so that all who come to you, the worst sinner that comes to you, may have their sin lifted away from them because it has been placed on Jesus who loves us so much and then changes us, gives us the gift of his righteousness. We praise you, God. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.